Welcome to the Same Side Selling Podcast. I am your host, Ian Altman. I know for our listeners, it's a big shock that I am once again hosting because this is well into, well past our 300th episode. And this week, I'm joined by a guest, Matt Dixon. Matt, as many of you may know, was the co-author, still is the co-author, of The Challenger Sale and a series of books related to that. Very popular, something that's near and dear to many of our hearts. And we're here today to talk about his latest latest book called The Jolt Effect, which I will tell you, as someone who is reading the book, and I often say that I've written more books than I've read, um, it's one of these things where I picked it up, started reading it, and then couldn't put it down. So Matt, welcome to the program. Ian, it's great to, great to be here. It's great to see you after so many years. We met we met uh, many years ago, uh, and so it's awesome to see you again here, if at least virtually. But that's that's the world we're in, right? Exactly. And the funny part is that what Matt and I didn't realize is that we live about 15 yeah. minutes apart. And as we're talking now, it's like, where are you? I'm here. Wait a minute. We live basically, we're, we're more or less neighbors, and I just wasn't smart enough to know that. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> so, so, Matt, I... I know what's involved in writing a book and yet you did it again. So what inspired you to write this book and subject yourself to this process? Well, Ian, it was, um, I had a choice. It was go get a a root canal or write another book. And I went with the book. I I mean, what a, what a bear it is. You know this. I mean, it's, um, it's a grind, but it's like, it's an overused term, but it's a labor of love, right? It's um, when it's done and when you when you have those breakthrough moments, it's really rewarding. But for us, I guess there was there were two specific things. Um, one was, you know, we we wrote about we've been writing about these problems and these changes in customer buying behavior uh, for a number of years, including in the challenger sale. That the problem we we're writing about then was this whole issue of like customers learning on their own and boxing the salesperson out and forcing you to compete on price and you know, uh, that's a, that's a bad place to be in, um, challenger customer, which was one of the follow on books. We wrote about this problem of consensus buying, you know, more and more stakeholders showing up at the table, more stakeholders means lower probability of selling anything, um, et cetera. This latest book deals with a different problem, which we think is kind of the problem of the day. And we think it's a problem that unfortunately is going to get worse, which is deals lost to no decision. So to be very clear, we're talking about, um, customers that go through the entire purchase process, um, you know, they do proof of concept trials, they do um, uh, demos, they iterate on the proposal with you, they check references, and then they kind of ghost you and they go radio silent. And eventually we just kind of give it up and mark them as closed, lost in, in the CRM system. Uh, but it's not because the customer bought from a competitor, it's just that they chose to do nothing. Yeah. And um, this, in our research, we find that that about 40 to 60% of uh, deals uh, for the average salesperson are deals lost to no decision. So it's a huge deadweight loss for the seller and for the sales organization. And again, we think it's just the problem that when I talk to sales leaders and salespeople, like this is the problem that they want to talk about. Um, what do I do about this? How do I avoid this happening to me? The second reason was, so this has been something we've been tracking for the past few years in the past five years or so. Um, and it's progressively kind of moved up the, the hit list of topics people want to talk about. Like I'll talk about challenger and they'll say, yeah, but do you have anything about this other problem? Like, no, just say, you know, and I go back to like, well, have you tried doing more challenger, you know, and it's like, yeah, but there's a different thing we need. Right. Um, so the, the, the real thing that kicked this over to like, okay, we're going to go do a book on this or go do some research on this was the pandemic actually, because, um, at the time, uh, March, 2020, uh, my co-author Ted McKenna and I were working at a machine learning company out of Austin, Texas. 
And something we'll all remember this, something really um, curious happened in the world of sales in March of 2020, which is we went to 100% virtual overnight. Yeah. And so now, you know, we'd always been using Zoom for some of the sales interactions, but the, the important ones always happened in the client's office. But now all of them happened on Zoom, which meant they could all be recorded, captured and studied with um, with machine learning. And so we partnered with several dozen companies and over about a year's year and a half, we collected two and a half million sales conversations uh, from a whole range of companies. And then we use machine learning to study them at scale. So that was the thing that that pushed us into studying it because we wanted to do, we wanted to bring modern technology and study things in a different way. You have Challenger in our previous books were written off of survey research, which was state of the art then, but state of the art is different today. And so we saw this as a golden, maybe once in a lifetime opportunity to study a big pressing sales problem in a way that hadn't been studied before. Yeah, you know, it's it's brilliant. I mean, the thing that I love is that things that maybe I had assumptions about or philosophies about, now you've got data that backs it up. Right. And one of those things is we talk about this notion of when people don't make a decision. When, when, when you lose to someone picking one of your competitors, you feel like, okay, like they picked them over us, I got it. When they stick with the, quote, status quo, we often feel like, well, but why did the client, um, they probably weren't serious about changing to begin with. Right. So what I want to do is, is without, without disclosing too much of what's in the book, but this really caught my attention, talk about the greatest misconception that people have about losing to those status quo decisions. Yeah, it's, it, that, that is the question. And it was one we wrestled with for a while. Um, what I think what we've been taught, we start with like, what do most of us do? Or what's the trap we fall into, as you, as you say? So most sellers, I think, when facing a customer who starts to, and we know a lot of customers do this, so they'll state their intent. They'll say, hey, you know, Ian, I, I think our current approach stinks. I think you guys are the ones we want to work with, want to move forward. Let's talk turkey. Let's, let's start to talk about doing business together. And then the customer starts to talk, kind of talk themselves out of it. They get cold feet. They start to backpedal. They straddle the fence. All those things our customers love to do. And what do sellers, what have sellers been taught to do in those moments? Um, what they've been taught to do is go back and hammer the status quo because the only reason a customer could be getting cold feet is that they're still in love with the status quo or they're not convinced to change, as you said. And it's usually either one, we don't, we believe the status quo is good enough. Two, we don't believe your solution represents a, a more compelling alternative to what we do today. Maybe it's like 5% better, but it's not really worth switching. Or three, we think the status quo stinks. We think you're great. But we think the change journey is going to be too difficult, right? Getting from A to B, it's the juice is not worth the squeeze. Yeah. Our company's got other priorities, et cetera. But what we teach salespeople to go do is go back and just hammer the status quo. So we found in our data, when customers show signs of cold feet, 75% of the time, salespeople go back to the hammer the status quo. So they do it in one of two ways. They first use the carrot, uh, which is, uh, let me, you must not have fully understood how awesome our solution is. Let me, <laughs> like, did you? No, no, no. There's like another zero on that ROI. You missed it. Um, you know, as we talk up the, the features and benefits, we paint this rosy picture. We, we, we emphasize the positive. When that doesn't work, we put away the carrot and we break out the stick. And now we're, we try to use FUD techniques, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt yeah. to make the customers squirm a little bit, right? Here's what you're going to miss, miss out on if you don't move forward with our solution. Your, your competitors are opening a big gap on you in the market. Your customers hate you. You know, cost is leaking out of your business, all this bad stuff. Because again, the, the view that we have in sales is like, you just didn't break the gravitational pull on the, you know, the status quo has in the customer. So you got to go back and hammer it. So we found that 75% of the time, that's what sales people do. They, they're doing what they've been taught to do. 
But actually, the big surprise to us was that 84% of the time, it backfires. So it actually makes it more likely, not less likely, the customer ends up doing nothing. And this was a huge head scratcher for us. It actually brought our research to kind of a grinding halt uh, before it even got going. It, until we, we were actually invited, one of the companies that participated, uh, the head of sales there, a big cloud provider, they, she called and said, hey, I know you guys are, are doing the research. Would you like to sit on one of our pipeline calls just to... You know, because I know you're studying this. We we deal with no decision all the time. So come on in, listen to the dialogue. It might spur some some uh, creativity, some thinking on your part. So That's right. sure we're, we're really good at non decision. You should watch us. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> look, we deal with this all the time. Yeah. You know? So so we call into this pipeline review, and it was really interesting. One of um, the sales leaders' top salespeople, I've uh, been selling for the company for years. I was one of their top performers. Had a deal where everything looked great on paper. And then the customer started to ghost them, stop showing up for Zoom, stop, you know, would respond to emails, but days, sometimes weeks after the fact with very curt replies, you know, it was clearly something was going on here. Sure. And this had been going on for like six months. And so they had a conversation, which was, should we kill this opportunity? Like kill for cause, market as closed loss, call them in six months. So that's what they decided to do. But then, you know, as any good sales leader would do, they want to try to learn something from what happened here. So she asked the salesperson this question, which for us was like, holy smokes, that's it. She said, now, as we reflect on this deal, Bob, who is a salesperson, do you think we lost to the customer's status quo, meaning like they preferred what they do today, they're committed to maintaining what they do today, or do you think we lost, like, do you think they were just indecisive about changing it? And he said, I don't understand. Aren't those one in the same? Like, I don't get the difference. And she goes, no, they're totally different. And then we listened to her talk about the difference between being wedded to your status quo and, and actually yeah. struggling with something else. And we're like, Oh, wow. Like that totally changed our thinking. We realized we've been asking ourselves the wrong question. It's not what do the best salespeople do to beat the status quo? The question we should be asking is um, why do customers choose to do nothing? Yeah. What motivates somebody to choose to do nothing? And we found was fascinating and, and really opened our eyes to, and I think helped explain to us what high performing salespeople had figured out way before and way smarter than we are about this. They kind of figured it out on their own. They just never had the terminology for it. So that's what we tried to unpack in, in the book. That's, that's great. And one of the things that I often share with clients is this notion of, look, when your client doesn't make a decision, they either don't believe in the impact of doing nothing, yeah. or they don't believe they'll actually realize the results associated yeah. with your solution or yeah. both. And yeah. the reality is that one of the questions, and I'm, I'm interested in what your research perspective would be on this, one of the questions that I encourage people to ask their clients is, so let's say we do everything we said we would do, yeah, and you know what kind of results other people get with that type of solution. What would prevent you from realizing those same results? Yeah, And what usually happens is the client starts identifying all of their own fears and, and deficiencies about executing whatever the client's selling. So the seller thinks to themselves, well, no, our solution's great. And oftentimes what I find, and I believe when, when reading the book that your research kind of supports this, that it's not even that necessarily they doubt your solution, they doubt their ability to execute your solution. Is that what you saw? Yeah, really well said. And this is like I said, I'm in a series of like VA moments where I'm like, oh, I should have said it that way, you know. But like, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording. But the number of things you realize after you wrote the book, we're like, oh, I, you know. but anyway, thanks for another one, Ian. So, you know, I um, I just to back up on what you said, you know, what we realized um, was 
when you when you look at all the losses due to inaction, so the customer doing nothing, we found in our analysis that 44%, it was exactly what you said, but the split literally was 44% of those losses are because the customer prefers their status quo, or they don't believe your solution is a better alternative or more yeah. compelling, you know, not, not worth the change journey. The, but 56% of the time, it's because of uh, indecision about changing the status quo. And that indecision we found derived from three sources. So the first one is um, the customer doesn't know what to choose. So they're looking at all the options, the bells and whistles, the partner integrations, everything you put on the table. And they're like, I see four configurations, A, B, C, and D, and they all look good. And I'm worried I'm going to make the wrong choice. And then there's no coming back from that. Um, the second one is a lack of information, which is the customer saying, I just feel like I haven't done enough homework yet. Like I'm not, I'm not down the learning curve enough to really be a savvy consumer here. And I'm worried it's the next white paper, the next Gartner report I read, that's going to show me all the mistakes I should have avoided had I, you know, I just taken the time to do the research. The third one is um, what you talked about, which is um, we call it outcome uncertainty, which is the customer feeling like they might not get what they're paying for. So and it's and it what's so interesting about that is you're 100% right. They won't doubt your solution. They won't doubt or call BS on your projections, on your reference calls, on your ROI calculation. Like they buy all that. You proof points, success stories, case studies, all that stuff. But they still feel like, but what if we're the one company where this goes sideways? And if yeah. that happens, somebody's head's going to roll. And you know whose head head rolls first? The person whose name is on the contract, and that's me, right? So exactly. So, those now, what's so interesting is about those three things. I don't know what to choose. I don't think I did enough homework, and I feel like I might be left holding the bag. I didn't. I have no assurance of success. None of those have anything to do with the status quo. So you could have a customer easily imagine why you could have a customer who agrees the status quo stinks, agrees that you are the vendor to move forward with, totally buys your vision, yet still worry that I'm choosing the wrong configuration. I haven't done enough homework or I have no assurance of success that this won't go sideways yeah. and then not make a decision anyway. So now it becomes clear why when we go back and we all we do is try to reconvince the customer how great our solution is or make them scared into acting, we actually we actually can make things worse, not better. In fact, that's what we that's what we found, as I said before. So it's um, it, this was pretty surprising what it really led to this realization that you know, you need a you need a playbook as a salesperson for beating the status quo. You're not going to sell anything to a customer without beating the status quo. You got to do it. And I think Challenger is a good one playbook amongst many that you could use to do that. But once you do that, and the customer has parted ways, they've expressed their intent. They parted ways with the status quo. What starts to creep into their head are these other fears, and you've got to have a playbook for overcoming them. And so, if we were to summarize, what we say is, look, the beating the status quo is about dialing up the fear of, of not purchasing, um, overcoming customer indecision is about dialing down the fear of purchasing, right? Yeah. So it's, you need to have both. And it's it's a little bit like the brake and the gas and the brake, and you got to have both pedals to move forward. And high performers have figured out a way to, 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 play, to deploy both those playbooks across the course of the sale and to switch, you know, put one down and break out the other. But again, average performers have grown up in this world. And not, not, they've done nothing wrong. They've been taught to do this, believing that, Every indecisive customer is a nail and I've got my status quo hammer and I'm just going to hammer away at them. Yeah. Right? And, and I love how in the book you talk about this idea of omission versus commission and, yeah. the, and the bias, the bias in there of, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll give, I'll give kind of my abridged version then you can correct me, which is the notion of, look, if somebody doesn't change from the status quo, well, maybe they haven't changed in the status quo in the last five or 10 years. So they're probably not going to get fired for that. But if they actually change and it's worse, 
then they can get fired. If you wanna get top results for your team, take a look at the Same Side Selling Academy. Just visit samesideselling.com to learn more. Totally, it's, it's this funny thing where Nobody gets fired for kicking the can down the road, but somebody gets fired for changing the status quo if it doesn't work out. <laughs> so that was a, you know, a tough truth about doing the right thing. But it, it's your your commission omission point. You know, I think most salespeople are very familiar with the idea of, of, of loss aversion, right? This is why we use FUD techniques, why we try to paint the picture of like, what's going to happen if you do nothing, the cost to your business, to you. And I... Um, People understand that. They understand that human beings are wired to avoid loss more than they're wired to maximize gain. We're all familiar with that concept. That's why we dial up the FUD. But what most people don't realize is that there's two types of loss. One is, as you talked about, an error of omission. That's failing to do something right. That is when you experience a loss due to inaction, doing nothing, right? The second type of loss, though, is an error of commission. This is where you actually did something wrong. You personally chose a course of action. It led to some loss and is directly attributable to you. If I were to summarize, it's the difference between missing out and messing up. And it turns yeah. out people are okay with missing out. They are not okay with messing up. Yeah. And, and so that's why it rings so hollow. You go back to these customers and you try to dial up like, no, you don't understand all the bad things are going to happen if you do nothing. But what they're really thinking is the bad stuff is going to happen if they do something. Right. Yeah. And that's what you get hung up on. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so one of the things that, that I think about in this, and once again, what I love is that you have research that supports things that we've been asserting for years, but our assertions were based on just, well, here's our instinct and here's what our personal experience is. And it seems to be working, but we didn't have millions of calls that support it. So now it's like you come out with stuff. I'm like, Oh, thank God. Matt did research on this because now we can use this research. It's like, no, no, as, as confirmed in the jolt effect, right? Yeah. We get to say that. But one of the things that we talk with clients about is look, once the client accepts, yes, here's what happens if we don't change, then we need to pivot our focus to results. Absolutely. And one of the ways that if you want to get clients, very often people in sales say, well, I want the client to go along with my process. It's like, look, the client has no desire to follow your sales process. But if you mm-hmm. said to them, there's a, there, there's a series of steps that our clients who have been most successful with this have followed. Yeah. How open would you be to looking at that? Then we can make adjustments accordingly as it'll fit your environment. The client yeah. would be like, oh yeah, I'll totally follow a process that's sure. proven to be most successful because that's their biggest fear is that they're going to buy something and it's going to fail. Does the research kind of support that notion as well? It does. It does. Yeah. Actually, um, so we um, we talk about um, JOLT is is it's an acronym. It's the name of the playbook. I'll just really quickly I'll tell you the four. But one of them you're hitting on, which is a really big one, and I think is the one that most people you're right they feel in their guts, but they never really had language for. And, and just to be clear, this like Challenger, I think this was um, we didn't we didn't invent this stuff. This was like high performing salespeople had figured this stuff out. Um, people knew it in their guts. You're right because they they done this stuff and it has worked but they maybe didn't have a language for it and they didn't have data to back it up. So this is, you're right, this is lending some more validation for, for what they, some knew intuitively, but but had never had a name for. So, so JOLT is a uh, four-step process, or if you will, four behaviors. The J is judge the level of indecision. We need to figure out the the depth, the breadth, the intensity of the customer's yep. indecision. Turns out indecision is everywhere. 87% of opportunities are with customers with either moderate or high levels of indecision. So you can't disqualify your way out of this. O is offer your recommendation. So, you know, at some point, the customer, if you just put the choice on the customer, you put 10 options in front of them, 
and they all look good, they won't make a decision, right? And, and they will worry about making the wrong choice. So you've got to make a firm and personal recommendation to chalk the field and, and clarify things. The L is limiting the expiration. So how do we get the customer to, they're never going to be as, as much of an expert as we are, right? They just, they can't because they don't do what we do. They might only buy the solution once in their careers. And yet there's so much information out there and they will want to, cons- they will enter the analysis paralysis zone fast. And so we've got to put a stop to their exploration, get them to trust us as an expert that has their best interests in mind. And then the T is exactly what you're talking about, which is taking risk off the table. We've got to de-risk this decision for the customer. We've got to make them feel like they're not jumping out of a plane without a chute. And one of the best ways to do that, exactly as you, you pointed out, is we've done this. We've, we've been down this path hundreds of times before with companies just like yours, with the same concerns, the same fears, et cetera. And we've got the roadmap. We know what it looks like. And we're going to walk you through it and be right there by you every step of the way. And that instills the confidence that the customer is not on their own, right? Because yeah. that, that decision, even in, in a big company where there's lots of stakeholders, for that person who signs the agreement, that's a lonely place to be. You know, sure. and, and this tells them, no, 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 you're not going into the wilderness. You're going with a Sherpa, somebody who's been there before, knows knows where all the pitfalls are, right? And and Matt, one of the, one of the things that I want to make sure that listeners pick up on is this notion of limiting additional research or additional data. We can't get there unless we've earned their respect yeah. and their trust. Because if we say, yeah, you don't need to research other stuff, yeah. the client's like, um, no, no, you're a sales guy. I've been trained not to trust you, so yeah. <laughs> that's not going to be enough for me. But if there's a couple things that 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 I often talk to that once again. Your research as I'm reading this, I'm like, this is great. The first thing is we talk about this concept of disarming that says, look, you have to demonstrate to your client that you are more committed to the outcome or result than you are to the sale. So if they look, if they see it as you're just focused on the sale, then you have no credibility. If you say, look, this doesn't work for everybody. I want to get a sense of which environment you're in, because if it's not going to work, I'll point you to something else. Yeah. Then if we take the time to learn more about them, the client says, well, you know, Matt knows enough about my business to know if this is going to work. And he on the onset said, hey, if it's not going to work, he'll tell us. He's asked enough, he's asked enough questions that they must feel confident this is going to work. But if you yeah. jump in and say, hey, you need our stuff. By the way, what's your situation again? It doesn't work. It's like we're, we're hiring a developer uh, right now to help with, with some of our same side selling academy development. And one of the people we interviewed said, oh, don't worry, everything will be done on time and within budget. And so my team said, what do you what do you make of that? And I said, well, we haven't told him what our timing or budget is. So, <laughs> I, so I, find, I find it a little bit suspicious that he said, don't worry, it'll all be within time or budget, even though no I don't know what either of those data points are. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you look, you hit your, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, what well, last time I checked, Jedi mind tricks don't work in sales. So, so going and telling your customer who wants to consume lots of information that they don't need to do that. Like you, you don't yeah. need to read that magic quadrant report. Exactly. That's not, that's not the report you're looking for. Like that's the door. So, but what's interesting is it, you can lay the groundwork to earn the right to do that. And the way you do it is there's two steps. So the first one is you've got to establish the trust. And this is an overused term, I think in sales, but we found this is very true. Like there is an agency dilemma an agency bias at work in, um, uh, in sales, which is, you know more than I do. You know where the bodies are buried. You know what doesn't work with the platform. You know all the customers who hate you, um, even though you only put me on the phone with customers who love you. You know what the difference between the fiction and the truth around what actually is is uh, value we're going to get out of this. 
but your job is to oversell me and sell me stuff, stuff I don't need, sell me more than I need, et cetera. And so there are moments during the sale where you found high performers actively working to counteract that, pointing out stuff in their platform that's not ready for prime time, things that are yeah. not coming. You know, this is not even on our roadmap, things that your competitors can actually do better than you can. And even telling the customer what not to buy. I know you want the premium version, but I actually think you're going to be fine with the basic version. And here's why. Uh, yeah. Those are great moments for building that trust. And then you get the feeling like, yeah, you're right. This person is more interested in in getting me to the right decision and that more than they are interested in just landing a big, a big fish on the line, right? The second thing you got to do is not only build the trust, but you also got to build the credibility. You, you need to be seen as a person who actually knows more than the customer knows and that they can't, they can't get to your level of expertise. So they're working with a trusted expert. How do you develop that expertise? Well, if you got really tactical, we found that high performers were way more likely to do their own demos, way more likely to way less likely to bring extra people like the clown car of experts from their own side onto the call. And when they do bring an expert, because they don't make stuff up, if they're, you know, if they're out of their depth, they're going to bring an expert on the phone or on the call, but they orchestrate it very tightly. So what they don't do is like, Hey, I brought Ian. Ian's our chief product officer. Ian, take it away. You know what? Because Ian hates that, first of all. And then second of all, it sends the customer the message that you're nothing more than a glorified admin. Like you actually don't know any of the answers to any of the hard questions. Only yeah. Ian does. So then you get delegated down to the person you sound like. And so there's lots of ways for people to do that. It's not just running your own demos and, and tightly orchestrating moments where you do have to bring in a subject matter expert. It's also thinking one step ahead it proactively suggesting objections that the customer hasn't even articulated yet, because that shows them you've sold this to people just like me. You know what's going on in my head. You're helping me surface those concerns and you're dealing you're like, you know, you know where all the pitfalls are. Doing those things earns you the right to then tell the customer who asked for the fifth demo when you really they only needed two or three. You know what? I don't think that's a good spend of your time. And here's why. Yeah. You know, but you can't do that unless you've got that trust and that expertise, right? And I think also when you bring in that that subject matter expert on your team who's, you know, the Jedi master about all the big data that supports yeah. this assertion, if you're the sales rep, you can say, you, you let's say I was interested in you, I would say, so before I introduce Matt, Matt, I just want to make sure you understand, here's their situation, here's what their problems were, here's what ultimately we're trying to solve, here's what didn't work in the past for them, here's the risks yeah. are. Can you speak specifically to this issue that they yeah. told me was most important? Because together we need to decide if this is going to work or not work. Matt, yep. let me turn it over to you. Now, Matt's speaking about that narrow field and the client says, wow, they really understand what our issues are. In fact, maybe better than we do. Yep. So yep. I'm more confident in that outcome which to your to your jolt acronym, I'm taking that risk off the table. And it's yep. something that for my clients, I'll say to them, they'll say, well, the client's still hemming and hawing on this. And I said, okay, how much time have we spent talking about the results and yeah. what might jeopardize them having those results? Yeah. Well, I don't know that we really got to that. I'm like, that's what's going on is that they're not confident that they're going to achieve the results. And they may think that you've got the greatest product ever or the greatest service ever, they're just not sure that they can actually execute it. I've had clients, I'm sure you have too. I mean, both of us spend time helping sales teams improve their performance yep. where I'll say to somebody, look, if you're not going to have a process to reinforce this with your team, then you shouldn't invest in it because I can come in and no matter how engaging I am, if you don't reinforce this, it's not going to hold. Yeah. 
Yeah, those are so you know we one of the things we talk about in that that J area the the judging the level of indecision is this idea of you know active and passive sonar. So that that the passive sonar is like just picking up on the signals. Like what are we? What are, do we are we tuned in and listening for those markers of personal indecision or source of indecision or intensity of indecision that we can just listen for? But the other thing is like sometimes our listening won't. It won't reveal fully what's going on uh, there in terms of the customer's level of indecision. And so we've got to make a powerful request or, or, um, or if you will, send out a ping so we can get the echo back. Yeah. And I think, I think some of those examples you're talking about are, are great. You know, have you thought about the resourcing for this? If something's going to go wrong, what's it going to be? And even articulating, I think, some of the fears we know are the customer's mulling over right now, but they are not comfortable articulating, but basically doing it for them. Yeah. So it feels like there's a really big decision for your organization. And that's why I'm sensing a bit of hesitancy here. Give me a sense on scale of like bet the company to like, this is small potatoes. Where, where are you on this? What's your source of anxiety? Because I'm, I'm getting the feeling you're not ready to move forward. And I, I want to make the right to help you make the right decision. But um, but let's have a frank conversation about that. Like those are really powerful moments that will then get the customer, elicit a response from our customer that we can then do something with. Right. Yeah. So, so Matt, just to, to wrap up, last question I have for you is this, aside from how do people learn more about you and where should they buy the jolt effect and all that? Cause having read it, I will tell you that our audience is going to love it. What was the most surprising piece of information that you got out of the research? What's the thing that, that you thought, wow, I, that was really unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, so I, I think there were a lot of them along the way. I think one I mentioned before was, when we um, we go back and we try to relitigate the status quo, it actually backfires more often than it works. It didn't become clear to us as to why until later, but there were lots of other ones. There's one that's you know we didn't spend a lot of time talking about in the book, but you know because we're talking about calls, um, when we took it when we when we took it as an, uh, uh, a body of of data afterward, and we look at it from an audio perspective, we found some pretty interesting things like the the audio makeup of a high performer sales call and an average performer sales call just looks different. And, and I'll give you a couple examples. So one is, um, and this is contrary to a lot of what you read on, on LinkedIn and um, out there is that when you look at a high performer sales call, they actually talk more than the customer. When you look at an average performer sales call, they talk a lot less. And you also find that they have a lot more silence time in there, which we found silence time was actually a huge red flag and a great indicator to the customer that you don't actually know what you're talking about. So, but, but what's now here's, here's, I'll give you another example is we found that this is totally counterintuitive that high performers talk over the customer and interrupt them a lot more than average performers. Now here, I want to be really careful here, Ian. I, what I'm not saying is everybody go out and suck up all the dead air and talk all the time and then interrupt everybody. It's going to be great. You're going to convert like gangbusters. This is not an input, it's an output. So what I mean is when you are an expert and the customer wants to hear what you have to say and you're pushing their thinking, you're getting them to think about it differently, it's a natural output of that that you're actually going to end up talking a lot more. It's also natural that when you're talking about a salesperson who's locked in on the conversation, who's fully engaged, who's not interrupting because that's rude, like my parents told me that was rude, I'm sure yours did too, but instead cooperative overlapping, which is finishing the customer's thoughts giving them verbal cue. Yeah, right. Oh, Ian, totally hear what you're saying. Ian, that's interesting. Can you tell me more? But but jumping in in the same way you would if you were talking to your best friend, th that's what that conversation looks like when you look at the, the audio markers of it. So again, if the, the lesson is not go interrupt people and you'll sell more. The lesson is like when you're fully dialed in and you're talking to this person like they are 
a real close friend, a real you know person you've got a great relationship with. That's what that conversation sounds like. There's not a lot of dead air. There's not a lot of like empty space in that conversation. So, so those were really interesting things because again, they're very different from what people are taught to do, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that early on in discovery, there's probably, I'm, I'm guessing you'll see patterns where top performers yes. are speaking less and getting the client to speak more. Once you get to the point that you've developed, okay, now we know what we're trying to solve. Yep. Then it's about okay, now let me lead this discussion to help us towards a solution. So yeah. my guess is in the data, you probably see a shift to early in discovery versus later in the process. I, I think that's right. Yes, we did. And we also find, you know, some of those things, you mentioned this before, but some of that talking is actually reflecting back what you've learned in prior conversations, right? Yeah. So based on this, I, I'm under, it's just the same way you talked about setting up your subject matter expert, Like. Right? Here's what we're trying to do. We learned this about the organization. Here's what their concerns are. Here's what the, the particular kind of, um, uh, nuances of this opportunity are. It just, it's like, boy, that person was plugged in. They heard everything I said. Yeah, that's great. So Matt, where do people learn more about you? And more importantly, where should they pick up the jolt effect and when? Yeah. Uh, so book comes out September 20th, um, which we're super excited about. And I'm glad to have this one sort of in the rearview mirror, but you know that a lot of the hard work comes after the book, <laughs> you know, this yourself. so we're gearing up. Um, but the, um, the book comes out September 20th. I would check out jolteffect.com. That's a great resource to find out where to order the book. Um, it's a great place to find out about, you get some free resources, learn about events we have coming up. And also, you know, how can you bring some of these skills and, and some of this uh, training to your sales team? Excellent. So Matt Dixon, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge. Um, it's, you know, there, there, there are tons of people in this space of sales development and business growth, um, many of whom I would not have on the podcast. But Matt is one of those people where I greatly respect the work that you do. I love you. that you provide this amazing research that supports these harebrained assertions that I've made <laughs> over the years. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again. You got it. Thank you for your time.